So, my name is Ollie Stratford, and if you're anything like me, your first thought when you hear someone say walnut isn't going to be timber. You're thinking of the nut, right? I mean, of course you are. Those brainy kernel things wrapped up in an eminently crackable shell. It's a good thing this episode is going out just before Christmas, because the festive period is very much walnut season. If you wanted to indulge in the most Christmassy nut of all, now's your chance. Although, not to rain on anybody's walnut parade, but the walnut isn't, biologically speaking, a nut. Okay, it's treated as such in culinary terms, but if we're talking botanically, it's actually a seed. A shock, I know, but walnuts are the seeds of the Jugland genus, walnut trees, if we're to get colloquial, and form a part of the tree's droop. What's a droop, you ask? Well, listen, don't worry about that. Just think of it as a fruit and we can all move on. Because while walnuts are much discussed, the trees from which they drop are less well known. Although they're every bit as interesting as their brain-like children. As you might have guessed, there are quite a few different walnut trees, but the one we're going to be looking at today is the American walnut, or black walnut. Just to get us all orientated, here are some quick walnut facts. Walnut fact one. Walnut has a creamy white sapwood, but deeper within the tree, the heartwood can be anything from soft to dark chocolate brown. You even get some purple streaks in there sometimes. Lovely. Walnut fact two. The wood's grain is typically straight, but in some trees it's curly, giving you a carving pattern that is really quite beautiful and ornate, and which is often sought after by designers. It's a tree that can have waves for days. Walnut fact three. Walnut is good for many things, such as furniture, flooring, boat building, musical instruments and umbrella handles. But one of the things it's particularly known for is its use in rifle butts and gun stocks. Why? Because it's dense and tough, which is suitable if having to deal with the forces involved in shooting. You can even use it for airplane propellers, which, if you think about it, is not bad going for timber. Walnut Fact 4 Walnut trees can actually produce walnuts for over 100 years. In August 2017, Prabhakar Reddy P crushed 212 walnuts by hand in a single minute to break the world record in manual walnut crushing. The previous year, Mohammed Rashid from Pakistan cracked 181 walnuts against his head in the same amount of time. Okay, so that last walnut fact was just for fun. But now it's time to zero in on walnut wood in action with one of the real greats of 20th century American woodwork and design. This episode is here to tell the story of George Nakashima, who did more with walnut than perhaps any other contemporary woodworker. George was born in Washington in 1905, but he didn't actually come to woodworking until the late 30s and 40s, after having travelled the world, immersing himself within design and architecture from across India, Japan and Europe. For the next 50 years, George was a giant of the American craft movement, creating furniture and wooden objects that delighted in simple nuanced forms or which played with and teased out the endless structural complexities found inside centuries-old trees. But here's someone who knew George better than anyone to tell you more. Well, I'm Mira Nakashima. My father was George Nakashima. I've, uh, I guess I've worked in the family business since I was born, practically. <laughs> Uh, but I, I went to uh, Harvard College and uh, Waseda University and have an art, a degree in architecture. 
and came back to Nakashima's to work with my father and my mother in 1970. My father started out as an architect in his um, early years and has a degree in architecture as well. And he worked as an architect in India and Japan. And when he came back to the United States, he didn't like the quality of craftsmanship here and the way they were, the building industry uh, was more concerned about budget and, and uh, you know, minimizing time and materials and so forth rather than craftsmanship. And he decided if that's the way they're doing architecture in the U.S., he wasn't going to be an architect anymore, so he went into furniture. George's entry into furniture wasn't an entirely happy one. It's intimately tied up with an episode within American history that has come to be recognised as a moment of national shame. As a Japanese-American man living in the 1940s, George was interned during the Second World War and sent to Camp Minidoka in Hunt, Idaho in March 1942. It was here in the camp that George met Gentaro Hikogawa, a craftsman trained in traditional Japanese carpentry, who was able to guide George towards mastering Japanese hand tools and joinery techniques, as well as deepening his own appreciation of craft and natural materials. When George was released in 1943, having been sponsored by his friend, the architect Antonin Raymond, he set up in New Hope, Pennsylvania, where he began to explore his burgeoning interest in woodwork. The trouble, however, was that wood wasn't cheap. And then Dad finally found a a little cottage that he rented, went out on his own, and uh, wasn't able to afford to buy the the good lumber with straight edges. So he found that if he went to the lumber yard, he could get the uh, the cutoffs. When you you know when you log uh, take a log and and cut it into planks. In the old days, anyway, in the forties, they used to cut off all the free edges, and then they would leave them you know unused. So Dad got those for a really good price, and he started using them. And um, I guess there was there was plentiful black walnut back then. There still is. It's a very common uh, eastern Pennsylvania wood. Walnut was a practical choice. It was the wood that George could lay his hands on. But he also came to a deep appreciation of the qualities that it could bring to the furniture pieces he was designing. It's a, it's a hard wood, but it's not, you know, it's not as hard as some of the uh, exotic woods from the tropical countries like rosewood or, or teak or something. And it doesn't normally splinter too much. Um, so it's a good, it's a good wood for, for joining. And it takes a really nice finish uh, when you clean it down and sand it and oil it. And it's hard enough so that your joints are strong. And it's a nice color. I think that's probably part, mostly why Dad chose it in the beginning, because it was such a nice color. It's dark. I mean, when he started out, the Danish were using darker woods, like teak and rosewood and so forth, but he couldn't afford that. So <laughs> walnut was a good price <laughs> and it was a good color. These practical considerations, however, fed into a lifelong love affair with walnut as a craft material, to the degree that in a year before George's death in 1990, he harvested and milled at least 100 walnut logs, many of which are still in storage at his studio, Nakashima Woodworkers. In fact, the studio is still well stocked for walnut, in large part because of an interesting quality of the tree itself. It's, it's, it's a difficult tree to live with. Um, it, uh, it's very acidic. So if you have a garden growing under it, not very much will grow. And it drops these, these big uh, green nuts uh, every fall, um, which are 
treacherous to, to walk around. <laughs> and they also leave acid in the soil. So a lot of, and it, when you live, when there's a walnut tree that lives near a house, it'll drop those nuts on your roof all fall. And, you know, you hear thunk, thunk, thunk all night long or something. So a lot of people take the, the walnut trees down. So there's a good supply of walnut trees in Eastern Pennsylvania. <laughs> there still is. There was when dad started out in the forties and there still is. Um, and most of the trees that we use, um, are not, you know, willfully harvested from a forest of any kind, but they're usually taken down because people don't want them around their house. In this way, George and his family basically worked with any walnut they could get their hands on. And sometimes, the trickier and more complex the tree in its structure, the more pleasure George took from working with them. There were enough straight trees that you could use it for um, structural members. And then it was really interesting when you had these these peculiar trees with with character, as Dad said. <laughs> Sometimes they'd have cracks and knots and holes and uh, healed over marks where they'd been struck by lightning during their lives and so forth. And he liked using those. He said in the beginning, people didn't quite understand what he was doing. But uh, he said after they caught on, they, they paid extra for the cracks and the holes and the butterflies that he put into them. Working with timber as it came, rather than trying to force a natural material into industrial perfection, resulted in one of George's design signatures, which today will be familiar to anybody who has an interest in woodwork, but which at the time was something that wasn't hugely well known, the butterfly joint. You know the ones, those visible bow tie joints that can hold two pieces of wood together or act as little sutures in a crack. People think that my father invented butterflies back in the 40s, but um, he didn't really invent them. They were, they were invented in Europe and for centuries, and they were, they were used in Japanese architecture for centuries as well. It's just they didn't expose them as part of the uh, design, and Dad exposed them. It's taking the um, the approach to uh, traditional Japanese architecture and and transplanting it or translating it to to the furniture. In, in Japanese architecture, the structural members are are always exposed as part of the design and uh, both inside and outside. And uh, so he felt that one should be honest and and if you're if you got a big crack, you can put butterflies in it and hold it together. And as he said in the beginning. People didn't understand. I remember there was when I was working in the office, we got a call in from a trucker who was delivering a table, and and he said, and back then we we crated everything that went far away, and he said, there is a big crack in that table, and I didn't do it, and he just wanted to make sure it was okay to deliver it. Which is not to say that the studio didn't develop processes to try and bring a little more order to the trees they were working with. Mira says that the studio typically will not harvest any walnut that is under 20 inches in diameter, for instance. But it's not as if leaving the trees to grow longer results in uniform timber. Walnut, she says, can grow tall and scraggly, and among the larger trees, there are often surprises to be found. In the case of the peace altar log, which was a 300-year-old walnut tree that George famously made into an altar in the 80s, processing that wood threw up surprises. You never know exactly what's going to be inside. <laughs> Sometimes they're, oh, the, the peace altar log had, I think it had a, 
a big glob of concrete in the middle where somebody had tried to preserve the tree at one point. You couldn't see it from the outside, and then we, we ran into it with a mill and it started sending out sparks, and uh-oh. So then we had to dig it out with a chainsaw before we could get around it. But there are always surprises, and that's what's fun. <laughs> this spirit of embracing a piece of wood for what it is and working with it to create something extraordinary is one of George's great legacies in the field, and something that Mira and her family are custodians of as they continue to work with Nakashima woodworkers. In particular, they're attentive to walnut, and what can be achieved within this timber when it's given the care and respect that it merits. Walnut has a lot of variations, even though it's the same species. Um, Some of them are, are light, and some of them are dark, and some of them are curly, and some of them are straight, and... Some of them are crazy shapes and some of them are split. <laughs> they're like people. They're all different. And even even plaques from the same log, it's um, they are different from each other. Every piece is different. And Dad said there's an ideal purpose for every board. This is the challenge facing designers today, particularly in an age when industrial processes which prioritise standardisation and repeatability are so dominant. When faced with a natural material that pushes back against this, can you remain supple enough in your practice to embrace that variation and to cherish materials for what they are, not for what you might want them to be? Just as George did when he set up shop 77 years ago. But when you're in the workshop itself, sometimes things change. I mean, a, 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 something that you thought was solid disappears or, or something that you thought wasn't solid is, is there. <laughs> and, where there's a knot hole that falls out, and you know, so that's what's beautiful about what we do, and that's why it's important for the design department to be in touch with the wood itself and with the work itself, and that's the way Dad envisioned the work should be. I mean, he, when he left architecture, he said it was it was so disintegrated, so he wanted some uh, uh, to have a business that was an integrated process where you actually are in touch with the material um, almost from the time it was still growing. Um, and, and the material is, is you know, it's, it's the center of everything that goes on. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Ollie Stratford, and this episode was produced and edited by Evie Hall with research by Lara Chapman. The podcast has been made in collaboration with and supported by the American Hardwood Export Council.